Hello, I'm Chris Biddle, and this is episode 81 of Inside AgriTurf, and, and part two of Birth of a Brand, my conversation with Harry Hankhammer, founder of Countax. Uh, but first, some background. But now on Radio 4, Peter Day has been presenting in business for 25 years. Tonight, he goes back to meet some of the business survivors who's featured in the programme over the years. Yes, it's 25 years since I started doing this programme, and I'm not the only one who seems to have survived the ups and downs of a quarter of a century of business life. Let's go right back to a competition in business broadcast in 1991, when Britain was, as it so often seems to have been, mired in recession, high unemployment and social unrest. Professor Sue Burley was there with the prize. So, there we are. Harry Handkammer of Countax. Sue Burley, would you present the award? Congratulations it's... very much for being in Business Survivor of the Year 1991. We present you with this very mysterious parcel, which you may now open. Thank you. If you unwrap wow. it, you'll see. <laughs> it, is, it is rather striking. A six-inch high figure hanging on by his or her fingertips to the edge of a tiny cliff <coughs> trapped in a perspex box. Congratulations to the in-business survivor of the year. How do you feel, Harry? Harry? The other day, 22 years later, I caught up with the winner and the award itself. It survived quite well, actually. Little yeah. man hanging off a cliff. Very it good. is a rather striking thing, and you're not ashamed of it, because he could have fallen off, couldn't he, later on? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and actually, <laughs> it's been said many times that the trophy, actually, you've got a man hanging by his fingertips. What happens next? I could have fallen off a cliff, actually, just after you gave it me, but fortunately that didn't happen. Harry Handkammer, still cherishing the in-business Survivor of the Year trophy he won 22 years ago. That was an extract of BBC Radio 4's In Business, uh, broadcast in 2013, looking back at previous winners of their Survivor Awards, which Harry won in 1991, after transforming his manufacturing company from an exclusive parts and accessory supplier to Westwood into a fully-fledged garden tractor manufacturer in just a few months. He made this move when faced with losing the lion's share of his business when Westwood cancelled their arrangement overnight. Now, Harry described the circumstances in part one, and after a successful launch of the new Countax tractor brand, he was encouraged by his marketing manager, Jeremy Sace, to submit his story to Radio 4, who were looking for business survivors faced with oblivion during those deep recessionary times in the early 1990s. Now, the three finalists were an estate agent, a London-based property developer, and a lawnmower manufacturer, Harry. The judges included Tim Waterstone from the bookshop chain and Nigel Whitaker, chairman of Kingfisher PLC, then the owners of B&Q. So, Harry, what do you recall of that programme? Yeah, it was a bit It was a bit of a shock, really. It was out of the blue. Quite nicely done. Peter Day, obviously, extremely well-respected, articulate presenter. And he'd got this um, In Business was the programme on Radio 4. And Jeremy had decided that Radio 4 was our target market. And also, this was going out just before the start of the season. So, you know, all the people... If you're on the radio, they will hear you and they will be at the Chelsea Flower Show where we will have a stand. And he'd worked it all out. I said, all right. I mean, I don't like that sort of thing. I'll be honest with you. You know, getting questioned live on radio about this, that and the other. 
Um, but it had been a good story. And we were in we were in a situation where the banks were losing money. And here we were with this incredible growth in that year. We'd gone from potentially losing our 75% cust- you know, of our turnover customer to, t- to a turnover that was three times as big as the year before and forecasting it to double again. And I can't remember the protocol for the entry, but Jeremy got involved in it. And the next thing I know, we were, hauled, we were in the finals. And I, like, like you say, I was very surprised. I wasn't expecting to win it. Um, but it was done live and it was done in the basement of the, of the BBC at just off Regent Street. Once we got it done, I was not expecting the impact it would have. But Jeremy being Jeremy knew, you know, he was a proper, uh, very clever marketing director. And he, he knew an angle when he saw one. And we ended up with just absolutely loaded with inquiries um, at Chelsea Flower Show and people coming on saying, oh, I heard you on in business. And it was a boost to the business, which was great. Um, Fantastic. And then the plaque I've still got was wonderful. Uh, we put it in the showroom, obviously. I've still got it. it. was designed by the people that designed the start of the money program, which was this fancy cog thing that went on that was quite in- intricate and clever in his day. And I got this case, glass case, with a cliff at the back of it, and a little man hanging by his fingernails. <laughs> and yes. then obviously, you know, and, and then obviously they put a plate on it with my name on. But yeah, that, was, that would have been ah, probably only 91 91 yeah it was like yeah that. so um, as you as you progressed through the 90s and uh, harry what were the what were the smoke signals coming from from plymouth were they uh, were they particularly aggressive towards you well at the start yeah i mean they they tried to block suppliers they tried to block dealers various you know what i call reactive tra- tactics not and they also then made a new product which was probably the thing that was most damaging for them um because it did. It did not. Uh, it was. It was produced too quickly, and it, it wasn't really serviceable when it went wrong, and it used to go wrong. And it was. It was. That was a stroke of luck on our part, really. Uh, it was new people doing development. Uh, it's very easy to think that you can go out and design something, but if you haven't had a, haven't had the sort of garden machinery birth and you understand how to cut long wet grass versus short dry grass and all that nonsense you can very quickly make some make some big mistakes by just changing a few little things and the dealers are very good at understanding product because they've had to deal with it all all their lives and they know a product when it works and when it's easy to get at and service and all the rest of it and if you've got to change the oil and take the whole bonnet assembly off to do it so they made some mistakes and that was really um I'm not going to say the final nail in their coffin, but it really did reduce their numbers and they had to actually scrap it in the end. So, uh, and by, by then they hadn't developed the product. I mean, one of the, found, the founder of Westwood was, was, you know, where I really got my knowledge of engineering was that he would change everything all the time. He never stopped. He had a constant never ending improvement policy. And when he, when, when the company was bought, that went, and we continued that in our company. We used to, I think we developed two products a year forever. So, you know, whether they're a replacement or a new cutter deck or a new grass collector or, or a new product completely, some of which were, you know, you always make mistakes in manufacturing. No, nobody escapes that. You know, you'll have what we call a dead duck. You know, you'll have something that doesn't sell that well and people say, I don't like that, I don't want to buy that. 
But generally, if if you're pointed in the right direction, you, you've got all the dealers on your side and it becomes easier to sell it. And old customers that have had problems that can't collect grass properly and all the rest of it, if you can demonstrate, which was really our our goal was to get everybody looking at our product and testing it before they bought anything else. And if we always believed if they could sit on our product, they'd never they'd never buy anything else once they'd used it because it was nice to use, easy to easy to service from the dealer's point of view, and it really performed well. Um, but they, but um, leading on from that, obviously, the next part was uh, they decided to get out of it. Um, well, uh, ransoms themselves were running into tr- into uh, tr- trouble, and were I think ninety eight. They were bought by Textron, and uh, and then you, you everything went full circle because you actually bought Westwood. Then what what was the background to that? Then Harry, well, actually, to be honest, it was Jerry that got wind of it. Their old founder, uh, he said to me, you know, I think they're they're getting out of it. I mean, well, the only reason they hadn't got out of it before was they couldn't swallow the hit on the balance sheet because it had so much loss in it as a business and Textron being a much bigger company and obviously wanting to make proper adjustments, if you like, to everything, they decided they'd take the hit. So they, they did an internal management buyout, which was, which was led by their management team then, which was a, an, an internal finance director and, uh, and the then sales director. So we, got wind of it and obviously we'd been battling against them and weren't their best friends but they needed someone to sell it to or sell the assets to if you like the brand and whatever and we were interested in the brand and obviously interested in the dealers we weren't particularly interested in the product we would we would take the spares business because you have to so that's 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 how it started and then next thing i found myself huddled in a room with my then finance director John Moy, uh, telling me that we should pay nothing for this company. <laughs> I kept trying to say to him, we're going to have to pay something because somebody will. But we we did um, we did a, a really good, reasonable deal. And it, I think it took everybody by storm. Nobody was expecting it because yeah. it was done very quietly. It was an interesting uh, negotiation because uh, I didn't have any, I, I felt comfortable that we, we weren't going to pay too much for it. But I also knew we had to buy their stock because it was it's you can't throw the stock away. It's got to go somewhere. And that meant we had to sell their stock. So that was a little bit tricky. And obviously we had to reco- relocate it all. So it all had to come out of Plymouth. That wasn't too big a challenge because we had quite a big team on our hands in those days. But we decided we would continue to produce some grass collectors down there. And that, and we moved some of their staff because one of their biggest problem was what to do with their staff. And we actually retained some of them to build some grass collecting machines. And that made the whole transition from their side much better, even though we didn't give them too much for it. We never saw that coming. And, but when we got it, uh, we made a bold decision to scrap it and just rebuild the brand with a new bonnet, our chassis, all our engineering and use the existing dealers. And then we knew that wouldn't go down too well with our existing dealers. But, you know, it, yeah. it wasn't worth doing if we couldn't do something properly. What, what were your, um, given your long association with Jerry Hazelwood and Westwood, what, what was your feeling at that time? Was it, was it one of sort of quiet satisfaction or 
Uh, do you punch the air or? Uh, no, I didn't think that we got, we weren't too smug about it because it was too much hard work to be smug about. <laughs> <laughs> to sit back and think, how the hell are we going to swallow this? Yes. Um, but it put another, it put another bunch of dealers on our books. And the nice thing about that was it allowed us to then sell those dealers other things because we were also the Echo Power Tool distributor or we'd become that. But, the, you know, we, we, uh, I think we didn't have a hard time selling it to any of the dealerships in the end. Because, you know, they'd always competed against each other as brands. The only thing is our dealers saw a better product going in. Harry, you've always had to look for an opportunity for, shall I say, parallel marketing and so on. And uh, you had two opportunities that you've mentioned Williams um, already. And um, I do remember a a very slick presentation, dry ice and rock music um, at JCB. Uh, One of your tractors being unveiled in in JCB colours. What was the thinking behind that? And, and, and did that, did that actually work in the long run? Um, one did. <laughs> um, the, the Williams one worked extremely well. We, um, we were never going to build it long-term. It was only ever going to be a one batch or maybe, uh, I think we did a three-year contract, but we would do three batches. The, the Williams one's a bit more simple to, to, to discuss. I'll give you that one first. The, we, we, I said earlier, we used to use their conference um, area um, and it's a really marvellous setup because they've got the museum there with all the cars and all the old drivers going back to, you know, Keki Rosberg and, you know, Clay Regazzoni and all of that. It's lovely. You walk through this Hall of Fame and down the other end is all the cars and it's really nice. And they've got a lovely conference centre where you can actually do a nice presentation and a lot of grass outside. So we were dealing with them. I'd known Frank going way back because when I was a retailer, I actually sold him a, a Westwood Garden tractor uh, over at his house in Pangbourne or in that area, Goring to be precise. And um, we were at a conference one day, and <laughs> one of his one of his guys sidled up to me and he said, um, "Frank wanted to talk to you about garden tractors." And I said, well, I can get Frank some garden tractors. She said, yes, but he said, one of the provisors is he doesn't want to come to work on a Monday morning and see something red in front of him again. And that was good. We actually have a red tractor with a little yellow badge. And the Ferrari thing was, <laughs> you know, they were killing everybody with Schumacher at the time. So I said, oh, no, colours, that would be difficult. I said, that's a, that's a real challenge. I said, we don't. You know, changing paint is the holy grail. You cannot do that because you've got it just so disruptive. You need all the parts uh, at once. And uh, that's not how we work. We do batches of different parts. You need to shut your paint line down. I said, that would be an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. I said, just tell him to rethink it. And he came back. He said, no, Frank said it, it must be. But he'll do, he'll do something with you. You know, you can have the Williams brand if you want, you know, if you can sell it. So I said, okay, we'll, we'll think about it. Anyway, I went back and thought about it. I thought, well, if we did a batch of whatever, you know, 100 or something in one go, uh, it might work. But, of course, it was much more complicated than that because you've got to go to your molders, make the bonnet, and you've got to match the white with the white of the paint, and they have a particular blue. And uh, it was it – was, and, and, of course, we got carried away with it. We started to say, right, let's have a carbon dashboard and aluminium pedals and and push-button starter, which we'd not had before. And we did way too much work on it. And I was thinking, ah, typical bloody hand camera, you've got yourself carried away just because it's a motorsport thing. 
And next thing I knew, we went to the Chelsea Flower Show and we charged quite a bit of money for this product because it was very expensive to make. But the next thing I knew, we got to the Chelsea Flower Show and for some reason, Sterling, I'd mentioned it to Sterling, and I, uh, I said to him, do you fancy coming to the Chelsea Flower Show so you can come and have a look at our new Williams Garden Tractor? He's only just down the road at Mayfair. And then Jane, our PR lady, decided that she could get the press involved with that. So we made sure we had a time for it. And my brother shot down to Mayfair, picked him up, and we'll never forget how Sterling told him which way to go in every single road to avoid <laughs> the traffic and kept saying, go on, put your foot down, boy. It just... <laughs> When we actually got him there, he sat on it, and no sooner had he sat on it, and he was saying, how'd you start it, boy, was the cameras were on us. And it went out live, um, or was recorded to go out in their programme, Chelsea Flower Show programme in the evening. And it wasn't a quickie. It was it was a good four or five minutes of full-on, you know, Camtex have built this Williams garden tractor. And the next thing I know, every dealer wanted one. And so we sold the lot in one go. Yeah. Uh, and that was a real surprise, you know, and, and it was very straightforward. And we did it for about three years. We would, and they became almost collectible, believe it or not. You know, to the odd, the old nerdy <laughs> racing guy would have one in his garage and not have much grass to cut. <laughs> but we got through that, and that was fine. And we had a lovely time with with Frank. He, when when we took we took forty French dealers to the conference centre uh, on one of our events. Uh, using all their banks to show our four-wheel drive tractors and all that stuff. And when he sat down, Frank came in and talked to them in French. And he told them the story about how this happened, how he didn't want, you know, a red tractor with a yellow badge on it in front of him when he came to work on a Monday morning, which they thought was delightful. And his French is really good. So that it was a, it was a very good uh, little exercise. But the uh, I, I get the, the impression one, the, the JCB didn't quite work out the same. And the other one was just a... It was, it was never going to fit for three reasons. Uh, and the obvious one is that, you know, we have a big dealership of garden machinery dealers that you know too well. But when you're JCB, you just have a bunch of JCB dealers that are well spread apart. And we'd had a successful launch of a diesel tractor that had sold a considerable amount and has gone very well. Um, and I knew Sir Anthony from my Westwood days because we used to have the odd tour up there. And subsequently, we had an exchange, a technology exchange with them, where we looked at their lean build process. And I'd sent my uh, my production manager up there to look at the lean process. And Anthony said, you can have, you know, whatever you want to do. He said, but we don't want to come and have a look at you. So we we went up there, understood what they were doing that was different than what we did and liked it. Um we liked the way they packaged it and how they'd organized it. And we could see big benefits if we did the same on our production line. And when they came to us, they then started talking about product and the diesel in particular, because they were packaging up what they called a landscaper product. So they would have what the landscaper needed and they included in that a diesel garden tractor. Um, so we, the, the agreement was we would ditch our product and put it into JCB. And of course, it needed to sell through our dealers. Otherwise, it wouldn't be worth anything because they didn't have enough dealers. So they took all our dealers. Um, I'm sure you attended that event yeah, um, up at your Toxeter and, and laid on uh, with their ex-BBC 
technicians a dry ice presentation that blew everybody away except all the dealers because they just thought, what is this all about? It was like the launch of something spectacular, not a product that they'd been selling before in a different colour. And it then became quite apparent when we went to sell them that some of our dealers couldn't sell them now. They could before, but because JCB were banned from some of our dealers' showrooms, so they were Ford New Holland or, yeah. or whatever brand, um, they're not allowed to sell a JCB product. So we so suddenly not, not you out of a lot of agricultural dealers and yeah, who sell garden lot. machinery. Yeah, yeah mm. half the ag, ag dealers gone mm. completely and some really good ones. Mm. And they were disappointed and we were disappointed and we kind of haggled with it for a little while. And I think it was a three-year contract, Chris, and I just cut it short halfway through. They weren't doing the numbers. We weren't doing the numbers. Uh, but what it did do is it got us uh, it got us close to their production capabilities, and that was a big win for us. Um, so that side of this, we would have had that anyway without the garden tractor thing. And I also packaged for them some Echo product. You know, we did some cut-off saws in their colours and all sorts of things with the Japanese. Um, we didn't get much out of that, apart from a few nice helicopter rides, mm. backwards and forwards with the Japanese and uh, JCB. But we, um, yeah, we had a... I, th- I think I think it was it was a bit of a lesson, and we then reintroduced it back in our colours, and then got the numbers back, um, and, and no hard feelings, as if it, you know there was never going to be. It wasn't a big enough impact on their business, and it, it was having a bit of an impact on ours. So it wasn't wasn't that difficult. But the Williams one was very successful, indeed. Uh, and Harry, look, I've really enjoyed this this, this trawl through, and uh, as, as everybody will know, some twenty years after you started Countax, you um, you, you sold uh, out to Arians, to Dan Arians. Yeah. Um, but actually, a couple of days before you si- signed the deal, you were down in South Wales with a with, with, with a <laughs> a land, a, sorry, a lawnmower speed record um, on Pendine Sands, which I recall mm. very vividly as being yeah. one of the most uh, enjoyable and 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 quite um, eccentric weekends I think I've uh, ever been to. Yeah, I mean, I remember you being there because you'd been there before I got there, and um, it was uh, the quick story is that we were approached by Bewley, who had uh, a good connection with um, Don Wales, who was Campbell's, um, Donald Campbell's cousin, I think, or nephew, sorry, no, nephew, I'll get it nephew, right. I think. Um, so Donald Campbell's nephew. And he'd, but he'd had a few records up his sleeve on various things. And the guys from Bewley approached me and said, look, we can sponsor this. We'll supply the equipment, pickup trucks to run up and down and do various things, but we need somebody to build it. Um, they weren't prepared to pay for that, but they said you will get all the publicity if you can if we can break the world record. And I think at that time it stood at about it was an American guy and it stood at about um, seventy five miles an hour or eighty miles an hour. I had fun doing it. It, it wasn't expensive for us, even though you, know, you might say, well, "Why are you doing that while you're doing all the other stuff?" But we started it over a period of months with our developers wanting. You know, they're all sort of half racers my developing guys they all love motorsport and motocross and all these things and they wanted to get their teeth into it so i i gave them i said you know if you want to do it you know burn the midnight oil and do it as a moonlight it's all yours and i'll supply the engine 
um, the fancy front wheels with proper bearings and things that we're going to need to do 100 miles an hour. Yeah. And so it was a, it wasn't, uh, it looked like a huge project, but it wasn't quite that good, but it wasn't that, it, that expensive, albeit time consuming. Rather oddly, it was it was covered live on Sky Sports, which uh, I always thought thought was quite mm. odd. But I think two abiding memories of that weekend was what was firstly it obviously had to uh, prove I think because it was going for a Guinness Book of Records, so it had to prove that it was a lawnmower. Okay, so on, on the grass overlooking Pendine Sands, um, mm. it, it went up and down. I think was it Pete Farrell? I think Peter, was Peter. Peter was really the leader of what happened. There was we we made a mower. A uh, special little mower deck, and you had to put it on, cut the grass before and after. Yes. So, and it had to cut grass properly, which it did. But the um, Peter rang me up and said, "Look, this whole process is taking way too long. Um, I don't think I planned on going down to Pembury, to be honest." But <laughs> he said, uh, first of all, they're lifting every pebble off the beach. There's a name for it, which I can't remember." Yes, I remember part of the team. We had to wait for the tide to go out, obviously, um, yeah. before he, he he would attempt yeah. the run because obviously there have been pebbles and, and rocks and detritus yeah. left on the beach. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we think we could have done an average of 100 miles an hour because the the uh, there were two things about it that were fun for me. One is we got to um, our Williams connection. We um, We got Patrick Head involved, who was the, you know, Obviously, everybody knows the Formula One guru behind yeah. um, Frank Williams, who did all their design and development. And I'd spoken to Frank about it. And he said, no, talk to Patrick. And I, I said, look, do you mind if we bring this around? Because we think if we go too fast, this thing's going to do something strange, aero-wise. And um, we took it around. And he, he walked in, and within five minutes, he said, yeah, that's going to lift off the ground. He said, the air's going to go over that bonnet. So front wheels are going to come up in the air when you get to about 90 and he said, that might be a bit tricky. <laughs> I said, okay, I'm glad we talked to you. What should we do? He said, well, it's going to lift by about 40 or 50 kilos um, or 20, 25 kilos. Just put some weight on the front. I said, are you serious? He said, yeah, just put some weight on the front. He said, uh, look at the weights now at the corner. I said, just stick another 30 kilos on the front. Anyway, I then went back to, we had a Kawasaki engine on it. And I went back to Kawasaki and I said, what's the biggest lawnmower engine you've got? And he said, 35 horsepower. I said, can you tell me what it weighs? So we then decided if we put that on and moved it forward a touch, that would do the trick. And it could give us a little bit more power because I think we only had 25 horsepower on it or something. Anyway, off it went. And if Don had put his foot down when he should do and not build up slowly, he would have done the average speed at 100 easily. In the end, we lost about 10 miles an hour. I think it got to was... 87, I see, in a report. Over yeah, there you yeah. go, 87. So we lost a good 10 miles an hour, we think, and yeah. maybe a bit more because he didn't get on it early enough. And no. I was on the back of the so, – so you know how it works. You do a run one way, and then you refuel and do a run the other, and it's the average of the two. So whichever way the wind's blowing, you're going to go faster one way than the other. And I was on their pickup truck at the back with a toolbox with Peter and said, come on, let's go up the other end and see how this is going. And we were doing exactly 100 towards the end of the run when he came past us. 
So because <laughs> I told the driver to do exactly 100 yeah. and, and that would give me a gauge on how quick he was going. So it was it was doable for, for our target of 100, but it still broke the world record. Yeah. And uh, and obviously received all the you know stuff for a while um, that these records do. But the odd thing was that no, not odd, but the nice thing was he said the guy that owned the owned that record from America came over to watch it. He did. Yes. Um, and he and he and he then went back and built another one. I can't remember what happened yeah. after that. One. Yeah, that was great. Look, Harry, I've really, really enjoyed th- th- this trawl. As as, as as I said, if everybody knows, uh, in fact, it was a couple of days after that uh, world, world speed record for lawnmowers that you did the deal with the uh, Danarians, and it, it has been a roller coaster, presumably twenty years ride from 1989 through to whatever it was 2010 how do you look back on those days oh, um, a lot of fun i mean i always managed to squeeze in a lot of motor racing um and all those years including the motor racing was without a doubt the most exciting times i can remember and and we uh we were very very successful but it was never easy easy you know it never is it always looks once you've once you've achieved something it always looks like you know, it, it couldn't have been that difficult, but none of it was was easily won. And, um, you know, when we did the deal with Dan, uh, well, there was no relief. I didn't feel relieved because we were, you know, it was like a weight off your shoulders and now I can sit back. And I didn't feel regret either. Um, you know, Dan and I got on well. We still get on well. He, um, he's got a different perspective because he has such an enormous company and all he wanted to do is keep buying more businesses and obviously when it's your business you're a little bit more precious with it and you want things done a certain way that you know will work and other ways won't uh, and I could see that you know I needed to probably not spend too much time getting involved with the shall we say the American philosophy of how to manufacture um, because there will be a different culture than me and and that's as is often the case but uh, I was really quite delighted when it was Dan because, you know, we'd had a few people looking at us and Dan had tried to buy before. He wanted to, as he called it, a um, beachhead to Europe. And we certainly gave him that. And we certainly gave him a lot of distributors. So he did, you know, he did, uh, he ticked a big box when he bought us. So yeah, no, no real regrets on it. But if, if I'm honest, I, I think we probably sold a bit late, not too early. I think we could have sold, I think we could have sold um, a bit earlier because I think there was it would have had more room for scope. The problem is once you keep hang on to it, you run out of steam in terms of product and how much more development you can do and what you're selling. So, you know, but I don't look back. I've never done that. That's not my not my thing. No, I, I guess not. Well, look. Harry, many, many thanks. It, it's been really good to catch up. It's been some time. And I wanted to do this episode because uh, I started my business in, in, in 88, 89 um, and built a brand, a brand of magazines, uh, which, again, I've sold. So uh, in some ways, clearly. this works both ways. Yeah, well, clearly. And I was going to say to you, don't uh, don't hang up on me yet because Service Dealer started in 88 and we've missed this bit out. One of the things that Jeremy taught me, my marketing director, was that you need to make sure you keep the dealers informed. And he said, it's no good just writing to them every week and saying, we're doing this, we're doing that. So it will bounce on their desk and they won't read it properly. And he recognized that service dealer was, there were three things he liked about it. One, all the dealers read it. Two, you were an extremely good copywriter. 
and that was coming from him, who was also an extremely good copywriter. Uh, and and three, we should all we needed a media to talk to our dealership through that we could launch new product on, not just at shows and everything else, and also have an opinion. Because it's quite nice to have an independent having an opinion on your business and everything else. And so for us, uh, it's a bit like today. If I want to know about auto uh, motorsport quickly, I go to autosport. And if I want to know about Goodwood, I'll go to motorsport. You know, there are a couple of medias that just give you everything. And we used to collect um, service dealer in our showrooms and people would come in at reception and read them. And, you know, obviously we'd be in some of them, but uh, it was a a remarkably good turned out quality read. And and for that, you know, you should take credit. It was, was, you know, and you did it for so long um, and you missed nothing because you had... You had the lawn and garden on one side and the agricultural stuff on the other. And, and you managed to cover both and understand both. And you attended every show, including the ones in Europe, and you didn't miss much. So it, the other thing that we all got from it, the fourth element, was we understood what everybody else was doing, which, you know, because <laughs> you always managed to get some copyright in there. And that, that, that's, uh, I think, I think to, you know, even you know, look, looking back, I think even... Uh, from from the perspective of your marketing, because you, you did your own, you know, you took a lot of advertisers in there. Um, the positioning of an ad in your was always a good, you know, you always managed to get your priorities right. So good read was always front pages or middle pages, you know. Um, and I think you did, you know, you deserve a pat on the back because you did a cracking job with that. Well, thank you very much. That, that's very kind of you to say so. And uh, it was enjoyable and, uh, and meeting people like yourself and a lot of compatriots uh, in the UK and abroad was always, uh, I enjoyed the shows um, and, and some elements that we miss these days, but um, no, life goes on. But look, Harry, many, many thanks. It's been really great to catch up and, and, and really share your story um today on uh, as i say i'm publishing this on my 80th birthday which uh, oh, uh is, a, is a special moment for me um, and um I'm, thanks ever so much indeed and really good to catch up well same here thank you chris all the best thank you very much enjoyed it there is absolutely nothing i can add to that i i still think uh, that that is probably the most remarkable story that has emerged from this industry for a very long time Uh, Today, Harry is enjoying a new direction, harnessing his love of motorsport as a director of Silverstone Estates and the British Racing Drivers Club. But for many in this industry, his lasting legacy will be the man, the driving force, the creator of the Countax brand. I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me. And this is Inside Agriturf. Inside Agriturf.